0: But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Good morning. morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Good. Good. It's the 11 o'clock crowd. We are awake. We slept in. Well, you slept in. I did not sleep in. But hope that was nice. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just messing with you. Uh, Man, I'm so glad that you are here with us this morning. If we have not met yet, maybe you're new and visiting. Uh, My name is Brad, and I get to serve as the pastor here at New Life. And uh, we are... (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> One person's, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and uh, we are on the second to last week of a 16-week series that we've been working through since January, which feels so long ago. Um, and next week, Easter Sunday, is the grand finale of the series. It's when we're, we're concluding it. But I'm really excited for what God has for us today. So the first time that I ever went to Washington, D.C., was in my 8th grade trip, on my 8th grade trip, and it was right after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. Now some of you are sitting there doing math in your mind, and you're like, my pastor was in 8th grade in 2001? Yes, Karen, I was, okay? You can talk to the manager about it later if that bothers you. I'm 34 years old, okay? Jesus was 33, so I'm older than Jesus now. So anyways... I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time after the 9-11 attacks, and everything was closed. I mean, there were no tours open for anything. The White House was closed for tours, the Capitol Building was closed for tours, the Washington, everything was closed, everything was closed, and so the next time I went to Washington, D.C. was about 12 years later, and I was... So ecstatic to be able to do everything. I mean, I'm a huge history nerd, so I was really excited to be able to tour everything. And one of the places that I was most excited to tour is right in the middle of Washington, D.C., and it's the Washington Monument. And when my wife and I arrived, this is what it looked like in 2013. Are you kidding me? I mean, just look at that scaffolding it is beautiful. Said no one ever, right? Like, it's it's being restored. It's closed. I was frustrated. I was angry. Nobody looks at scaffolding and says, wow, that's some really sexy scaffolding. Like, People don't say that. Nobody goes to admire scaffolding. I mean, scaffolding is useful. It's functional. It serves a purpose, but it's not beautiful. It's there to do a job, and then Get out of the way. Imagine if you were a builder. Well, some of you don't need to imagine because you are, but imagine you were a builder, and you put all of the work into building this beautiful structure of scaffolding, and you invited people from near and far to come admire your amazing scaffolding. And in the process, in admiring the scaffolding, people missed the beautiful thing behind the scaffolding. The building that was being restored, the new thing that was being built, that in admiring the scaffolding, they missed the point of the scaffolding, which was something greater behind it. I think we do this all the time in our lives. It's the kid who opens all of their Christmas presents and birthday presents. Some of you are parents and you know this experience. You spend all of this money on presents for your kids, and what are they more interested after they open the presents? the box. It's like, if I only knew, I wouldn't spend all this money on presents, or adults do this too, right? We're in this beautiful moment, and what are we doing looking down at our phone, and we're missing the moment. We're we're focused on the scaffolding when there's something more beautiful happening behind it. The church has done this with God too. Like, I, I wonder, I wonder if some of us, we look at our, our money, the, the ways that God has blessed us, and, and we treat money as just an end in and of itself, not realizing that God has blessed us to be a blessing. And so we focus on money, the scaffolding, and we miss the greater thing that God wants to do. This is why such deep divisions exist in the church today, if you look around. Like in the American church, there are deep, deep cultural divisions. Why? Why? Because we focused on the scaffolding and we've missed the greater work of restoration that God wants to do behind it. The problem is, is that what if we are missing the heart of God because of all the scaffolding we've built around God? Like, what if we're missing the heart of God, the essence of who He is, because we built so much scaffolding around him? You see, scaffolding's not a bad thing. It's useful, it's functional, but it's not beautiful. And here's here's the problem with sin. Is that in the very beginning of the story, Adam and Eve, we talked about this back in January, Adam and Eve were created to live in God's glory. That's how humans were created to live. We, as human beings, were created to experience God's glory, to express God's glory, to live out God's glory in every single area of our lives, and to give him glory in everything we do. That's why we were created But the reality for sinful people is that God's glory is weighty. It's heavy. In fact, the word used in the scriptures for glory is the Hebrew word kavod. And I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on this word. I did that with a Hebrew word a couple weeks ago. But just to bring up this word here, whenever you see God's glory talked about in the Old Testament, it's this word, and the word literally translated means weighty or heavy both in a literal sense and in a spiritual sense, that God's glory is heavy. And the problem for sinful people is that God's glory is so heavy that in our sin, when exposed to his glory, without filters and without scaffolds, his glory is crushing. That no man, as God says to Moses in Exodus, can see the face of God and live. His glory is that stunning. And so, what did God do? He provided scaffolding, tools, and ways in which people could experience glimpses of His glory, see His glory, and not be crushed by it. In fact, it's in Exodus 33 where Moses approaches God and he says, God, show me your glory. And God's response is basically like, You can't handle my glory, it's too much. Watch what happens here. Moses says, Please show me your glory. And God said to him, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and will be gra- I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In other words, my glory is too heavy a burden for you. And the Lord said, Behold, behold, There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God gives Moses a scaffold, a useful and functional tool in which he can be exposed to God's glory but not be crushed by it. This morning, I was uh, sitting facing east in front of a a big window at Starbucks, because I love Starbucks, and uh, this big, huge thing that I haven't seen for weeks and weeks and weeks appeared in the sky and overwhelmed me. It was the sun. Yes. Anybody else? Is this still sunny out there? I think it is. I hope it stays. Uh, But the sun came out. This is one of the cloudiest Aprils that we've had. And the sun, the light of the sun was so overwhelming. Like anybody remember the solar eclipse a few years ago? (laughs) What'd they say? Don't look up without some kind of eye protection, right? Don't look up. Don't look at the sky. Don't look at the sun. It is overwhelming. You need some kind of scaffold. You need something to shield you from it. And this has been the story of sinful people throughout the entirety of history is that you cannot experience the glory of God in all of its fullness, in all of its power, in all of its potency without being overwhelmed and crushed by it. It is that powerful, and so we need scaffolds. In fact, what God gave Moses and the Israelite people is an entire system of scaffolding. He gave them a tabernacle system, a temple system later on of sacrifice and ritual and all of these different rhythms they had to go through, to protect them from the weight of God's glory because God's presence in and of itself is dangerous to sin. And so as high priests would enter this tabernacle and later this temple, they would enter what was a room called the Holy of Holies or the holiest place one day a year where they were called to go through this elaborate system of purification and sacrifice, all to make a sacrifice of atonement, make atonement for Israel's sins. And there's a Jewish tradition, legend, that says that the priests would have an ankle, like a cord tied to their ankle, like an ancient Ankle monitor, I guess, or something like that. And uh, they would go into the holiest place, and just in case God's glory crushed the high priest and he died in the holiest place, they could pull his lifeless body out of the tabernacle. We have always, since sin entered the picture, needed scaffolds to approach God and to experience his glory. The temple system the system of sacrifice, all of it was scaffolds for people to experience God's glory. But here's the problem with scaffolds. And here's what Israel did. Here's what we continue to do today is that our scaffolds can become the main thing and we can miss the work of restoration behind it. Israel made the temple itself the main thing and they missed the new thing. They missed the glory of God behind it. Our scaffolding is not bad. It's useful. It's functional. But if it refuses to get out of the way, it gets in the way of the restoration work God wants to do. You have scaffolding, and so do I. Like, maybe your scaffolding is you've been really, really wounded by religion, like to the point where even coming into a church like this is a big step for you. And so your scaffolding looks like baby steps, just small steps Each one feeling like a bigger risk, and a bigger risk, and a bigger risk. That scaffolding's not bad. It's useful. It's functional. But if all you ever take is baby steps and eventually find yourself out of self-protection or self-preservation, not taking more steps towards letting yourself go and worship and just going all out without worrying about what people think about you, if you never take steps to move out of isolation and into community, if you never take a risk again, you have put scaffolding in your life that is getting in the way of the restoration work that God wants to do for you and in you and through you. Scaffolding's not bad. It's not permanent. Or maybe you're here and you, you grew up in the church, and you cling to the ways that things have always been done. Like, we grew up in church where we sang certain songs, and pastors and people dressed a certain way. Like, some of you are really up in arms right now that I have tattoos and jeans on while I'm preaching right now, okay? Like, actually, so I wasn't going to share this, but I will because this is second service and you won't tell anybody, but... Um, I have a friend who's a pastor, and uh, he, he preached, and uh, he's got like m- more tattoos than I do, okay? He's got like major sleeve tattoos, and some old people in the church complained about those tattoos, and so the church bought him long sleeves to wear from now on when he preaches. And he was like, hold on a second, hold on. Like people who are upset about that, about the scaffolding, about just the secondary things, they're going to leave and Go find another church to worship their false version of Jesus somewhere else. But there's also people in the church who are willing to come and talk to me. This is what my pastor friend said. Talk to me. Students who are ready to leave faith altogether, and they're willing to have a conversation with me because I have tattoos. And so the the point is not whether you should have tattoos or not have tattoos. The point is we make so much of our scaffold sometimes, whether it's the way people dress or the way people look, or the way people vote, or the way people sing, or presenting a specific image. And so when people in our church don't even fit that, we think it's an attack on our faith itself. And I would say, no, it's just an attack on your scaffolds. It's just an attack on things that have been built up in front of the cross. And, and I'm here to tell you, our scaffolds are not necessarily a bad thing. Like some of you grew up in a rich faith tradition and you hold on to those things so tightly because you saw God move powerfully in those seasons. You've seen God move powerfully in seasons where you sang hymns and people dressed a certain way and looked a certain way. And I'm not here to judge that. I'm not here to blame that. But what I'm here to say is that don't White knuckle grip that as if that's your faith. It is just a scaffold of your faith. My personal scaffolding, I'll, go, I'll be vulnerable here because we all have it. I'll dog on other people and then I'm going to dog on myself here, okay? My personal scaffolding is my own plans. Like I love walking through this life with an agenda, with plans, with things kind of set out. I have plans for my life. I have plans for my family. I have plans for my church. And when those plans get disrupted, I find myself getting a little bit stressed out. Anybody else? Can anybody relate when your plans get disrupted? A few of us can. Like, I have found myself over the last few weeks, over the last few months, this is like vulnerability for me, okay, so this is hard, so don't like throw me out after this, but I've gotten like, I've lost patience with customer service people more times over the last couple months. Anybody else? I mean, You can both feel for what customer service people are navigating and also just be like, why don't companies want to help me out anymore? Anyways, that's just my own personal rant. But the point is, I get stressed out and I can go from zero to 10 and I can lose patience when my plans get disrupted. I can lose patience with my kids when my plans get disrupted. I can lose patience... And I can miss the restoration work that God wants to do when I can just spend all of my time grieving and mourning a dream that died and not realize that he's doing a new restoration work that he's inviting me into. So one of the prayers that I've learned to pray to avoid scaffolds in my own life when it comes to my plans is I've just learned to embrace the prayer I don't know. I've learned to embrace the posture, and I am learning. I'm not up here ever to pretend like I've figured this out, but I am learning to embrace the posture of falling on my knees and just saying, God, I don't know. I don't know why this person died. I don't know why this person lost their job. God, I don't know why there's this conflict I have in my life. But God, I do know you. And I'm not going to let my white knuckle grip of my own plans get in the way of the restoration work that you want to do in this community and in my life and in my family's life. See, too often our scaffolding becomes the main thing. And I just want to ask you what is your scaffolding? What is your scaffolding? Is it money? Money's not a bad thing. Money's scaffolding. It can be a tool used to express and experience God's glory in the world. But if money for you is just the source of constant worry or this, on the flip side, source of security and safety, then money itself is getting in the way of the restoration work God wants to do through you. Is it time or tradition? Like, Do you find yourself getting... Frustrated when people interrupt you, your plans, your to do lists? Is it preference? Is it your agenda or maintaining a certain image? I mean, we all have some level of scaffolding in our lives, and scaffolding that refuses to move out of the way can get in the way of the restoration work God wants to do. As Blake mentioned a few moments ago, today is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is this moment where Jesus comes into Old Jerusalem. He rides on a donkey into Old Jerusalem. And the reason I call this Old Jerusalem is because Old Jerusalem is filled with scaffolding all over the place filled layers and layers of scaffolding, and this is the world Jesus sees. By the time Jesus had arrived, the scaffolding, the tools that God used in the past to reveal his glory to the nations, became the main event. Let's read the text here in Matthew 21, verse 9. This is what it says. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. See, Jesus rides into the city, into this community, and when he looks, he sees scaffolding all around. Money is scaffolding in old Jerusalem. Money is scaffolding that became greed, creating giant gaps between the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor in the city. Power and influence were scaffolding. Things that can be used to bring and express God's glory had become an oppressive military force, the Roman Empire, that just burdened people with unnecessary laws and unjust rules. Old Jerusalem, safety and security were scaffolding that looked like fences and gates and locks and doors and keys and restricted areas designed to keep people out. The temple system itself, the, thing, the beautiful thing that God had created for worship of him and experiencing his glory, had become scaffolding. It was a structure designed to be a house of prayer for the nations, and Jesus describes it as a den of thieves for robbers. Den of thieves for robbers, same thing. Where's the very first place that Jesus went after he rode that donkey into Jerusalem? To the temple. And he flips tables. He rattles the scaffolding of the temple. He declares that he is going to destroy the temple and it will be rebuilt in three days. You see, Jesus is rattling the scaffolding. John 1 says that Jesus is the glory of God made known to us. And that Jesus came to his own people, but his own people didn't recognize him. Why? Because they had made scaffolding the main event to the point where they didn't see God's glory. And if I can perhaps make one of the boldest statements I've ever made from this stage, some of you are like, oh boy, brace my chair. I wonder if the church today is rejecting Jesus because we prefer our own scaffolding. Like what are the differences between the scaffolding in old Jerusalem and churches today, Christians today? Are we any less obsessed with power than they were? Are we any less obsessed with money or greed? Are we any less concerned with image? Any less bound by religious tradition and preferences? Like Jesus came to rattle the scaffolding so that we could see the glory of God as he intended it to be seen. Jesus arrives to Jerusalem and he rattles the scaffolding of religious systems. Jesus rattles the scaffolding of tradition. Jesus rattles the scaffolding of human empires. He rattles the scaffolding of partisan preferences. He rattles the scaffolding of your pretense and my pretense. He rattles the scaffolding to prove yourself, of earn your own salvation, of He rattles the scaffolding of maintaining an image. Why, though? Why do we put so much into our scaffolding? Here's why. Because when scaffolding is stripped away, when all of the layers that we add to this thing, all of the ways that we complicate it, all of the religious traditions and things that we add on top and top and top and pile on and pile on, when all of that is stripped away, all that is left is God's glory and my absolute mess. See, we build scaffolds, we maintain scaffolds as means of self-protection, as as means of saying, hey, look at their sin without having my own exposed. And what Jesus does is he rips down that scaffolding until all is laid bare and it's God's glory and my mess. And here's what's beautiful about the person of Jesus. That when God's glory collides with my mess, the result is no longer me being crushed, but his mercy steps in in that moment. It's his mercy through the person of Jesus that steps in when God's glory collides with my mess. It's like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where he finds himself in the holiest place where all scaffolding is removed, and he experiences God. And what is his response to the glory of God? It's, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, Like, God, your glory is crushing. Your glory, without any scaffolding, is crushing to sinners. And what does God do for Isaiah in that moment? His mercy steps in. And he says, your sins have been atoned for. This is what Jesus does. And when you understand this, when you understand that Jesus desires to rip all scaffolding away so that my mess and his glory are all that remain, you begin to understand the dawn of the restoration work that God wants to do in your life. The new life that he invites you into. The new heaven and the new earth that he is creating. You see, when Jesus' apostle John has a vision of a new Jerusalem, Right? There's old Jerusalem that he knew well, but when Jesus' did, disciple John has a vision of the new Jerusalem, as, as told in Revelation, this is what he sees in Revelation chapter 21. This is what John envisions. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No scaffolding, no temple. You see, when John sees this picture of the new Jerusalem, he sees a Jerusalem, a new world without any scaffolding. Just the unfiltered, unadulterated, unhindered glory of God on full display. There's no temple. You know how offensive it is for John to tell Jewish Christians that there's no temple in heaven? Like, Jewish people literally believe that in order for the lamb to be worshipped, there has to be a physical temple space, like a physical building. John telling Jewish people that there's no temple in heaven is like me telling American Christians there aren't going to be any American flags in heaven. Okay, It's like that offensive, which, by the way, is true. Okay, But it's that offensive to people. It rubs people the wrong way because we're so used to our scaffolding, and we so tightly hang on to that. So there's no temple. There's no sun or moon in the new Jerusalem. Meaning that even the sun looks dim compared to the glory of God. I mean, picture that blinding feeling of looking directly into the sun. Kind of like looking into these lights right about now, okay? It is, you, you squint when you look into the sun. It pierces your eyes. And what Revelation tells us is that even the sun looks dim compared to the glory of of God on display without scaffolds. Even the sun is scaffolding. And then the last one here is no closed borders or gates, meaning the New Jerusalem will be what God intended for Israel to be all along a picture of his glory for the nations, for every tribe every tongue, every nation to experience the glory of God where human empires cumble and fall at the feet of Jesus on his throne, King Jesus. And so in preparing us for glory for eternity, God is already at work rattling the scaffolding. He's already at work dismantling some things in our lives that we've built up that have gotten in the way of the cross. You see, there's another place in the scriptures where the sun goes dim and the temple system is shaken and the empire falls to its knees and that is on a cross at Calvary where Luke describes the sun itself failing. The sun failed when Jesus was on the cross and the glory of the lamb shone bright because the scaffolding is being rattled. It also describes this this curtain in the temple, this, this veil that was like more thick than like most of our walls are, and it's just shredded, torn from top to bottom. Why? Because God is rattling the scaffolding, and no longer is God's glory contained to a room called the Holy of Holies, but now it is experienced and expressed in every area of our lives, and every area of creation. And not only that, but the empire itself is shaken when Jesus is crucified on that cross. That the Roman centurion looks up at the cross with blood still on his hands, and he says, Surely this was the Son of God. The empire itself falls to its knees in comparison to the glory of the Lamb. The scaffolding its being shaken. It's being rattled. I came across this quote earlier in my study this week. And this says this. It's by a guy named John Ortberg. He said this. Perhaps we need less arguing about Christianity and more marveling at Jesus Christ. I just wonder if the world looks at the church and just sees all of the petty fights and culture wars, some of which are not unimportant. I'm not diminishing that. But just sees all of the ways that we choose to pick fights and white-knuckle grip our preferences and just say, I don't want to be a part of that. They've lost Jesus One of my favorite authors is a guy named Donald Miller, and there's a story that he shares in one of his books where he gets up in front of a a college class of Christians, like at a Christian college, and he's giving a lecture at this class, and this is what he says to this group of Christian college students, okay, mind you, keep that in mind. He says, I'm going to tell the gospel story to you, but I'm going to leave out one incredibly crucial and critical element as I tell this gospel story. And I want you, Christian college students, to tell me which critical piece of the gospel I leave out of this story. Okay, so he goes into this whole thing about how we have sin. And he he describes all of the plagues of sin that are infecting our world. Things like abortion and sexual sins and drug use and song lyrics on the radio and newspaper headlines and so on and so on. He goes into all of these things. Christian college students are like, okay. And then he goes into the wages of our sin. That because of our sin, we have been separated from God. Because of his glory and his holiness. Remember, his glory is crushing for sinners. So he goes into this. He talks about the, the hope of heaven and the reality of hell. He goes into, I mean, he doesn't hold back. He goes into... This incredible landscape about all of the sin and the brokenness in our world. And he talks about how that can only be solved through repentance, through a turn to God. And then as a result, we are invited into a moral life. And how our lives can become these God honoring and God centering things when we repent. And then he finished the story. And he rested his case. And he asked these students, he said, what piece of the gospel story did I leave out? And he waited for several minutes while no Christian college student in the room could answer his question. What part of the gospel story did I leave out? What part of the gospel story did I leave out? And nobody could answer his question. And then he said this, and this is a quote. I presented a gospel to Christian Bible college students and left out Jesus. Nobody noticed. Even when I said I was going to neglect something very important, even when I asked them to think very hard about what it was, even when I stood there for several minutes in silence, nobody noticed that I left out Jesus he was really good at highlighting all of the scaffolds. But when John has a picture of the new heaven and the new earth, it's not your preferences that are sitting on the throne. It's not your favorite song, in worship even, that is sitting on the throne. It's not the job that you've worked your entire life to build up. It's not the bank account that you've built over years and years of saving and investing that sits on the throne. It's not any of that. It is a lamb who has been slain, who sits on the throne and is worshiped for all of eternity. So as we, as we close today, I want to just invite you to think about whether or not your, sca- your life is built on all of the scaffolding around Jesus or if it's built on Jesus himself. And I think there's a question each of us can ask ourselves to know if this is true. The question is this, if Jesus was removed from my story, would anyone notice? Would anything change? Like if removing Jesus means no change in your life, no difference in the way you spend your money, no difference in the way that you interact with people, you've built your life around scaffolding and not around Jesus. Like, if, if Jesus hasn't made a difference in the way that I use my money for his glory, the way that I'm generous with it, then I'm holding tightly to scaffolding and not to Jesus himself. Like, if Jesus hasn't made a difference in my relationships with the people around me, i built my life on scaffolding. And I just tell you, like, this sermon is, is really personal for me. Because I am so sick of hearing story after story of friends of mine, people I love, walk away from faith altogether because they are so sick of how much scaffolding exists around the cross. That they're willing to toss out the cross in and of itself because of all the scaffolding around it. I mean, the move of deconstruction, chances are you probably know someone who's doing that. Maybe you have a child or a family member, you've walked through that yourself. And I just say that if if that's you, if if your church experience has been more obsessed with scaffolding than with Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry for ways in which we have not made the main thing the main thing in the church. I'm guilty of that. I've been part of church experiences that have been guilty of that too. And the invitation today is to put Jesus back in his rightful place on the throne. That we are a church that desires to be forever and always only about the person of Jesus. Everything else is secondary to that. Not saying things don't matter, not saying doctrine, all of that's important, but it's not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate and he is the one worth clinging to with everything that we've got so where might God be wanting to rattle and dismantle the scaffolding that you've built up in your life that are getting in the way of others experiencing his glory? Let me offer a prayer and then we're going to respond in worship today. Jesus, we thank you for the ways in which you dismantle our pretense and the images that we built up and the things that we've done that have good intentions, that are not all bad. Jesus, I pray that you will give us the discernment, the eyes to see where those things are getting in the way of people experiencing your glory. God, maybe for some of us, it's it's this holding on to tradition that, that we just need to let go of, that we need to hold loosely, that, that our plans and our preferences have been disrupted so many different times in the last couple of years, God, and and you're inviting us to see eyes to have eyes to see the new thing that you were doing in this community the new people that you were reaching the new people that you were drawing to yourself God, I pray for others of us who have been hurt and wounded by the church who have very real experiences of pain because of your name, God, and the way it's been misrepresented. And so maybe they've they've come into this place with defenses up not wanting to get undignified in worship and not worry about what other people think around them, not wanting to take a step out of isolation into community, God. I pray that you will show them that you are the God who rattles scaffolds so that we can experience you and your glory in the way that you intend. God, I pray for others of us who maybe have walls built up with our neighbors and coworkers and people around us, God, that we haven't taken face steps out to make an invite or to share your love with them. God, I pray that scaffolds will come tumbling down so that people can experience your glory. God, I pray for scaffolds that need to be rattled and shaken so that we can experience who you are and your glory. God, we love you. And it's in the holy name of Jesus Christ, the only one who sits on the throne that we pray. And everyone said, Amen.